Welcome to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. This, this is a Soul Fire production. Hey, so we have something really fun that we're about to do today. Well, first of all, I'm sitting next to you, which, you are which, sitting which next I love to, to do. Yeah, We did an Instagram live. Mm-hmm. And why don't you just say a little bit about that? So we answered some questions from our fellow travelers that they submitted ahead of time. And we did a live here in Santa Barbara. So check it out and stay tuned. We're going to keep doing something similar with our followers um, coming real soon in the future. So I know that the most of you probably did not get the chance to see this live. We did have over 100 people uh, between the two of us watching live, which yeah. which I think is all, I think is pretty good. Watch other people's Instagram live sometimes, and so I feel pretty good about that. Yeah. Uh, so again, thanks to our sponsors, because uh, I don't know we'll be doing commercials on this one. It might just be, so we'll just thank our sponsors for sponsoring us. And thank you for using them, because by supporting them, they you're supporting us. And we really appreciate that. So without further ado, here's an Instagram live from, I think, May 18th yep. of 2023, yeah. live in the kitchen in Santa Barbara. Oh, my God. The technology is amazing. Hi, you guys. We're doing our best. We're a little. Oh, my God. Yeah, right we, now. we got two little teeny phones. We got a computer. We got three people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's. Oh, that's good. But you can't turn you can't turn your uh, phone sideways, can you? No. For Instagram. Move that a little bit. Instagram live. Can nice. you, on Instagram, can you fix that, please? Special guest here. <laughs> Melissa Drake. Hello. Hello. We are so excited to be recording together. And then we have this special guest here, Dr. Melissa Drake, who is we you guys have heard us talk about her before. She's an amazing OB here in Santa Barbara. So we are here to answer your questions. And do you want to? log me on there. Thank you all for joining us. We are live on both Birthing Instincts and Birthing Bliss. So we're going to do the best we can. We have some questions that were sent ahead of time. Um, And then we'll do the best that we can if you guys have questions that pop up here. Can I just say how how come we're at Melissa Drake's house? Yeah, of course. You can do whatever you want. So we're in Santa Barbara. I, I drove up here to be in Santa Barbara so Bliss and I could be together for a day. And Bliss has very sketchy Wi-Fi at her place, so I Check. we searched around and I called I called just one or two people that I knew in Santa Barbara really well, and Dr. Drake was nice enough to offer her her home because she has paid her Wi-Fi bill. Pay <laughs> <laughs> my Wi-Fi bill? You do? <laughs> yeah. Well, you got must get discounted Wi-Fi. Yeah, there, so. I don't know what it is. Yeah. But... So we were at Dr. Drake's house, and she served us coffee. It's really good. I drank coffee today. Shocking. But I, I didn't know how to use the cap. <laughs> that is a funny story. So you guys, you know how they have like a little stopper in the top of the coffee? He broke it off and then was sipping through I, there with the stopper still in it. I thought it was, like a, out, I thought it was like a Diet Coke. You just like break the thing off. Figure out I was why living, living back in the 70s. Right. <laughs> Amazing. Okay. So right, to business. I wanted to tell you guys about a really amazing story. Um, that happened to me. I had a birth this past week with a mom who was attempting a VBAC and she was in padromal labor for probably like early labor for probably about 24 hours. And we went over and kind of checked in on her because she had gotten to fully dilated last time. So, you know, we just never know how quickly that process, the labor process is going to go again. And it was very obvious that she was not in active labor. And so we were like, gave her and her husband some instructions on what to do. We left. And then the doula, Kim Summers, who's an amazing doula here in Santa Barbara, went back and had the whole team come over. And we thought, God, we're getting in the tub. It seemed like she was getting ready to push. And then we were sitting there for a while. And it was obvious she was not having that natural instinct to push. And so we kind of like backed off and gave them a little bit more space. And she ended up being really uh, overwhelmed with the intensity of her contractions. And so after a few hours of trying many, many things to help her cope with this different positions in and out of the water, you know, we just tried all the things. 
she was like, I need to go to the hospital. And we were like, great, let's go in. Let's go get pain relief. So uh, we had a backup plan that didn't quite work out because the doctor wasn't going to be available the next day, which was actually the best thing that possibly could have happened. <laughs> and we went to VCMC. And VCMC is Ventura County Medical Center. Yep. So it's it's about a what, 35 mile drive, 30 mile drive. Is it from here? From yeah. Ohio. Oh, from Ohio. Oh, yeah. you're in Ohio. Yeah. Oh, right. No, oh, not okay. that far. Okay. Okay. Yeah. 40 minutes from Santa Barbara. Not quite that far from, from Ohio. Yeah. Right. So, oh, that's okay. So we got there and were received brilliantly. Nobody gave her a hard time. She was GBS positive and wanted to decline antibiotics. They, they said, okay, took note of that and didn't pressure her at all. Worked on getting her comfortable. And once she was comfortable, the doctor came in. His name was Dr. Caitlin Keynes. And he came in. Man? Yep. Named Caitlin. Yep. Cool. Yep. All right. And he actually sat right in front of her and took out a notepad and said, I hear, I know that this is not where you wanted to be. I know that this wasn't the plan. I heard that you had some trauma from your last experience. I would like to just hear everything that is important to you and make notes wow. Wow. of what it is exactly that you would like. And we went step by step. What would you like for the pushing phase? What would you like for your placenta? How would you like for this to be managed? What didn't work last time? She was contracting every three minutes or four minutes though. And so yeah. he was stopping while she was contracting. And She's, she's comfortable on an epidural. Oh, she's got her epidural at this yeah. point. So okay. she's very comfortable. She's had a nap, you know, we're, you guys, I got teary-eyed. I got teary-eyed. I was like, this is exactly how oh, things should, should be. Yeah. And so she labored. We finally got to complete. There were some things that happened in her story that were really like important for her because it ended up being very parallel to the last experience that she had. And she got to make some different choices this time yeah. and ended up getting to the point where she was pushing she really wanted him to put on a vacuum. You know that point when women are oh, like, yeah. hey, oh, yeah. you know? Well, and you know, let me, let me interrupt for just a second. Yeah. It's to give true informed consent means to let people know that you can help them. Yeah. All yeah. right. Yeah. Because not tell somebody that I I could shorten this for you if you wanted to. Yeah. Is, you know, even though that part of that means that it's almost like maybe you're suggesting it, mm -hmm. but there's a way to talk. And this guy obviously knew how to talk. Mm -hmm. But you need to give people that option because that is that is an option to shorten yeah. their second stage. Yeah. So he gave her informed consent on it. But when we were pushing, she was making such great progress that she kept saying, can you just put the vacuum on now? And he was like, you you can do this yourself. You're doing this. And so we didn't do it. We pushed the baby out and it was amazing. Okay. But here's the thing I've never, ever, ever seen before. They told her that the, they would wait to cut the cord till she was ready, that the placenta could be delivered and they could take the placenta home to do a lotus birth if you wanted to. Yeah. I mean, the whole thing, right? So they, the baby was born, placenta was still in, they left the room. Oh, nice. They said, let us know if you need anything, if there's bleeding, if there's any concern that you have. The nurse was still there, but quietly in the corner doing whatever. And it was just her birth team. And I mean, it was okay. unbelievable. The fact, that, the fact that we're all shocked is, is a sad state of affairs, but state of affairs. what happened there? What is there? Is there a new director there? Is there a new chairman of the department there? Is there, was it just you, doctor? I don't know because parents? I don't, I've never been to VCMC, but anecdotally, I have heard really wonderful things about the nurses there yeah. and about the docs there. Yeah, the um, other doctor was Dr. Dorner, who was also kind of overseeing him. Yeah. But yeah. But was Karen, was Karen's a resident? Was he a family practice resident? Or was he an older? Or was he an older? No, guy? younger. So he might have been, because I think they have family. Residents. They have family. Okay. Right. Yeah. Do they have OB residents? I think just family practice residents, I think. Right. But yeah, I've heard wonderful things about VCMC. Well, we need to have a parade in Ventura for Dr. So they, they gave they're... an hour. Before yeah. they came back in. For the placenta? Yeah. Lovely. They violated the ACOG guidelines? Shocking. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it well, was. Guidelines are guidelines. Yeah. They're not laws. They're not, you know. Yeah. Yeah, we 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 know. It was I mean, I know you know. You know, yeah. Good. Yeah. You have to get used to me. <laughs> I'm used to you. <laughs> and 
anyway, it was unbelievable. And I think it's the gold standard of what is possible with birth. It sounds the like hospital. the ideal transfer. And even like, just birth in general. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like giving her all those options, acknowledging the potential trauma, really taking the time to listen, really giving her informed consent, but also respecting her desires. I mean, like that is what I would love to see. Mm-hmm. And I'm actually planning on writing cottage a letter. Yeah. Just so you know. Yeah. Yeah. And just saying, look what I look what I saw. Yeah. Like this is possible. Can we work together to maybe help this be part of our community here? Yeah. So Wouldn't it be nice to adventure. be able to have coffee with Dr. Carnes, right? Is that his name? Keynes. Keynes. Uh-huh. And find out like just his his thought process. Though. I asked him to come on the podcast. So we'll see. Well, oh, he would be great. Yeah. He would be uh, great. It would be great. Yeah. I would, I would, I would. Yeah. Kim suggested it. She's like, you should have him on the podcast. I'm like, I should have him on a podcast. That would be amazing. You should have him on the podcast because his philosophy, whatever it is, wherever it came from needs to be showered to the heavens. Yeah. Showered to the heavens. No, shouted. Oh, showered to to the heavens, showered down to the earth. Yes. There you go. Just to, you know, spread everything. Okay. So, so this is Instagram live. What a wonderful story. Wish every hospital was like that. I had a home VBAC because things were so traumatic for me the first time around. My home VBAC was so wonderful and healing. I love that. That's from Gloria. Okay, great. So let's get to yeah, Just so people know that comments are scrolling up and down. We don't have anybody actually monitoring person, them. So person. if we can if we can glance and look at them, we will. But we've got questions that were submitted ahead of time. We right? will do. Yeah, we will do our best. Okay. So let's see. Where, where do we want to start? Why are there so many appointments at the at beginning? The, why are there so many appointments at the end of pregnancy? Speaking of starting at the beginning, I have to just tell you something that I did the other night, which was so much fun. Okay. I had a night and I was in I was in Agora. I was at Alex's house. Mm-hmm. And Alex and Juno and I went out for dinner. And then we went to see at the theater The Wizard of Oz. Yes. Alex Evangelidi is another amazing midwife in our area. And the reason I saw that is because she needs to know how to get to Oz. And where do they tell her to start? It's always best to start at the beginning. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Follow the yellow brick road. Yes. Follow the yellow brick road. Right. Okay. Super magical thinking people like me. Yeah. don't know that I want to start in the beginning. Right. Okay. So why are there so many appointments at the end of pregnancy? Because that's always the way it's been done. (laughs) Speak louder. (laughs) She said, because it's always the way it's been done. That is actually the answer. Yeah, I mean, I hate to say it. I mean, I think the original rationale for that was to say like, yes, well, the what are we looking for at the end of pregnancy? We're looking for the most compl- common complications that happen at the end of pregnancy or the complications that are more common at the end of pregnancy. Like preeclampsia. Like preeclampsia. Growth so, restriction. Yeah. So that's what we're looking for. Right. Mm-hmm. And if you look for something hard enough, what happens? You'll find it. You find it. Yeah. Right. So. Which is why we end up with high induction rates. And yeah. The truth is, is it's not necessary, but it is the standard by which everyone is taught. And we're all indoctrinated into that standard. So if you have a good relationship with your client, a lot of these things, they can be done at home. Yeah. They could just take their blood pressure at home. They yeah. could they could tell you the baby's moving fine at home. They yeah. could. You don't need to come in. And especially when you're talking about a schlep across town to mm-hmm. your doctor's office where you're coming in for driving 45 minutes yeah. to come in to wait 45 minutes in the waiting room yeah. for a four minute office appointment. Yeah. Oh God. There's almost no reason detriment rather than benefit Absolutely. from that. Now, certain people who have medical issues and stuff. And again, this is where individualization of care comes yeah. in. And in the midwifery model, a lot of times when I was practicing in the home birth world and somebody was supposed to come back in two weeks, I would tell them, you know, three, three and a half, four. <laughs> what right. difference is it? You there are people who don't have you don't care. you don't need you don't need to come in just because it's scheduled so that's that but the but dr drake is right the reason was is because the further along in pregnancy you get the medical model thinks there's more likely things to go wrong and they're always looking for things to go wrong that's their model and so they want to prevent those things from going wrong by catching it early but the problem is is that they pick up so many things that aren't really wrong but then lead to more anxiety and more fear as we've discussed over and over again on the podcast that Ultimately, there's probably a net negative of prenatal care as it's described in the in the medical model, yeah. right? Okay, we've answered that then. Yes. What advice can you give to delaying baby's first bath? Oh, <laughs> delay. Don't don't do one. De- delay. <laughs> yeah, right. We don't want a bath for our baby. Yeah, just decline it. <laughs> We're being silly about it, but that's a, that was a question, right? Yeah. Babies don't need not need baths. Let's be. Let's go back. Let's back up for a second. 
Babies do not need baths. Baths are actually detrimental to the baby being colonized by the bacteria that it acquired coming through the birth canal or being skin to skin with mom and dad. So you and do not. The Vernex is is very good for the baby. It insulates, keeps them warm, does all kinds of benefits. And the bath separates the baby from the mother. And there's mm-hmm. no point in doing that. Everything that's on the baby. Now, if the baby has like a bloody, you know, face because it's got blood on its face from mom's vagina or something like that. Yeah. You can wipe that off with a mm-hmm. dry cloth or something like that. Mm-hmm. But to use soap and water and to give these babies a bath, like we like was standard protocol in the fifties and sixties and seventies, they had to be taken to the nursery to get their bath. Right. That, that should die. As a person with terrible eczema, like don't bathe babies <laughs> just in general. Soap and water is terribly detrimental just to all humans, not in all circumstances, but like it's really helpful to have your microbiome. I'm not a gross, dirty person. I'm just saying <laughs> like Vernix is very healthy. Like normal body oils are very healthy. Like babies generally like don't need to be bathed immediately. What would you say to parents though? who are getting pressured, parents who are GBS positive, because they do get that pressure in the hospital to get that bath at 12 hours. Oh, I, I've been out of the hospital for so long. I didn't, I didn't really. So this is the thing. Patients in the hospital that are GBS positive are told, like even when they get their antibiotics, they're told to get a bath at 12 hours. Okay. There's no data to support that. I can tell you that there's no no real data to support that. Yeah. It makes no sense, medically speaking. It's counterintuitive to nature's design. I agree. Right. So just don't do it. To just me, it feels like you're it. stripping further protection to bathe because I feel like, just like we know about like the triclosan that was in the all those antibacterial hand soaps, we were like, this is going to be so great. We're going to wash with all these antibacterial hand soaps yeah. and get healthier. And then we realized like, my God, we're making all these super bugs and we're just stripping all of our own healthy bacteria. Well, you realized it. There's still Purell bottles everywhere mm-hmm. all right that people you know you walk into a store you walk into some people's houses they've got it they've got it everywhere yeah so they you know not everybody realizes it's detrimental well we were brushing our teeth with that stuff i mean triclosan's like in toothpaste i'm all who was <laughs> no <laughs> I like, holgate complete had triclosan mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. toothpaste mm-hmm. like that stuff was everywhere why not just so, put roundup in there i mean i'm sure <laughs> <laughs> but um i don't know <laughs> sorry but I feel it does feel counterintuitive to me to be bathing. Babies. Yeah, we beat that we beat that horse to death. I'm just gonna say, at a, at a home birth, we just don't we just don't recommend that. We don't recommend it until the cord has fallen off and is nice and dry, and not even putting any oils on the baby's body or any lotions or anything like that because babies do peel. They have dry skin. It's all part of the process of acclimating to life outside of the womb. If you really felt like you needed to put something on the baby, you could use anything that you could ingest any oil that you could ingest. So coconut oil, avocado, almond, any of that stuff, because your skin is an organ in itself. So it's going to absorb any toxins into the system. So what about what's, what's on, what's in baby wipes for their butts? I, I recommend that people do just water wipes right. so yeah. that it doesn't have any perfumes and nothing synthetic. Baby wipes have all kinds of crap. In them. Yeah. Water wipes. That's why wipes. I wanted to bring that up or because I, I would think that that's probably not a good idea either. Just, just, yeah. just water. Let them, let them be. Element's a tasty electrolyte drink. They've been sponsoring us for a while with everything you need and nothing you don't. That means a lot of salt and and with no sugar, as you like to say, none of the... BS, just like us. It's formulated to help anyone with their electrolyte needs. It's perfectly suited to folks following a keto, low-carb, paleo diet, but not for our pregnant patients who shouldn't be on any of those, (laughs) okay? Uh, But it's good for pregnant women. It's good for postpartum women. It's good for uh, birth workers. It's good for people who are outside working out. Summer's coming on. It's going to be hot and sweaty. Yeah, and it's grapefruit season. I just got my box. Yeah, well, not only is it grapefruit season, but but they also comes in a bunch of other flavors. Yeah. Watermelon, citrus, orange, raspberry, raw, your favorite. Mango chili. Lemon and chocolate raspberry. Lemon course. habanero. Lemon habanero. What is a habanero anyway? It's a, it's a spicy chili. Okay. Yeah. There you go. You know, the other day I was at a very long birth and we went to get some electrolytes for the mom to see if we could help her with some of the things that she was dealing with. And we, every one of the birth workers that was there had some too. We're like, we all need it. Let's all have some element. Yeah. And, it, com- and it comes in a little packet so that you, you don't have any waste. Right. Like Great. throwing bottles away and stuff like that. You can just use it in your reusable container. We love that. That sort of thing. So we love that. So you go to drink element, that's drink lmnt.com backslash birthing instincts, and you get a free sample pack with any order. Great. Thanks, Element. Thank you. 
Okay. How about any insight into a woman suffering from a subchorionic hematoma? Oh God, just don't panic. That's well, first of all, I hate, the, I, I even hate the term suffering. Yeah. yeah she's suffering, but she is mentally. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I love Try like, not to panic because mm-hmm. it is, it can be a very panicky situation. You okay, know. so can you just one of you describe exactly for everybody else what a subchorionic hematoma is? Okay, when the when the embryo implants in the uterine wall, it you know part of the embryo, part of the clump of cells becomes placenta, part becomes the fetus, part that becomes the placenta begins to invade the uterine wall to seek out nutrients from the mother by exchanging through blood vessels that never that never mix. And so it's very vascular area and encourages vascularization and neovascularization. And so every now and then as it's growing, it may cause some bleeding that gets trapped behind the placenta. And until the pressure in, if it's dissects into a small arteriole, if until the pressure in the, the blood clot is greater than the pressure in the arteriole, it's going to start to continue to grow and grow and grow. And sometimes that happens. It's actually fairly common. We see them a lot. Some of them will actually dissect their way out and you'll have a woman will have spotting, you know, in the middle of the first trimester. And that will be something where they're really nervous because they're scared. But a lot of times there's, you get your 10 week ultrasound, or your eight week ultrasound, and they see a subchorionic hemorrhage. It's an incidental finding. It doesn't mean anything, but of course, what are they going to tell you? They're going to tell you, oh, you have this subchorionic hemorrhage. Well, they want to see you back in two weeks to make sure it's getting smaller. And they'll tell you, or they'll tell you, don't have sex, don't oh. move around lie in bed, don't exercise, do all the things that will make you more anxious, basically. So, And none of them will really change the outcome of that. do the outcome. anything to affect the outcome. So again, we talked earlier about worrying and stuff like that. Listen, you and I talk about all the time. Worrying is something that serves no purpose. Yeah, because people will say, should I worry about this? I'm like, no. Even if you need to address it and do things, you don't want to worry about it because it's not helpful. And you're bathing your baby in, you know, anxiety mm-hmm. and stuff like that. There's no, because you can't, you know, it's a serenity prayer. Yeah. Grant me the wisdom to do the, affect the things I can and the, whatever, accept the things I can and something the about the courage to, to change the things I can and the, and with, to know the, the difference. Right. Yeah. yeah. I butchered that pretty good, but we tell people, I'm like, these are some, these are things that are almost like a consequence of having ultrasounds that are too powerful. Oh yeah. Back in the day, we really oftentimes we wouldn't it. know about it. Uh-huh. Oh, 50% of twins were diagnosed in labor. We, yeah, we just wouldn't <laughs> 50 know. Years we ago. wouldn't ultrasound people so early. We wouldn't be able to see these things with, with the kinds of ultrasounds we used to have. But in my snarky my snarky tone is that how are MFMs going to make money if they don't do ultrasounds? Right. right. And then bring you back for more ultrasounds. And that's 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 their business. So, yeah. Subcorrelating hemorrhage, sometimes they'll lead to a problem. Most of the time, they won't lead to. And a what problem. would the problem be? Mis- it might be a miscarriage. It, okay. might, it can lead to a miscarriage. Okay. But I don't think that anything you could have done would have made any difference. That is the thing, you know. Yeah, it's one of like one of those people are worried about their low progesterones or something like that. Oh, I got to take progesterone. I got to take progesterone. It's like you know, sometimes nature knows what it's doing, and often nature Most knows what it's doing. <laughs> and even though tragic, there's not a whole lot that you can do about it. Nor nor should you really want to do something about. It something that nature is deciding to take care of because usually it's because there's something that's not right. Yeah. So you said that a lot of times doctors will tell you to be on bed rest, basically. Yeah. What what would your recommendation be if, if this woman was your client? So I, the one thing I actually will often tell people to do is, is pelvic rest Mm -hmm. because I do find that, which means no sex, Mm -hmm. because I will say the one thing that can jiggle any blood that's in there loose Mm -hmm. is intercourse. Mm -hmm. Jiggling the cervix can knock any blood that's in there loose. Mm -hmm. And so if there is blood that's in there that will come loose, the jiggliest thing you can do is intercourse. Mm -hmm. And that can, if you're going to spot, that's going to make you spot. And spotting's not necessarily bad, right? Spotting's not necessarily bad, but if you're already worried about something, spotting is going to generally make people feel more worried. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, listen, if you're, if you're not, if you don't want to get more concerned and you don't want to see blood, don't have intercourse because it may not even be coming from the subchorionic. It might just be coming from cervical capillaries. Right. So just don't jiggle your cervix around for a bit. And another reason to to advise not to have intercourse is not because it's necessarily going to jiggle, but if the end result of this subcardiac is going to be a miscarriage and it happened three hours after you had intercourse, it would have happened anyway, but you're going to blame exactly. yourself. And so you don't want to put yourself Good and point. your partner exactly. in that position. That is actually 
excellent point. As I always say that to people, I'm like, I just don't want you to have anything to blame yourself for. Right. Yeah. Because it because you're going to. Yeah. And I just don't want you to have anything yeah. to blame yourself for. So just last question about this: subchorionic hematoma versus subchorionic hemorrhage. Well, they're, they're the, the same. same. Okay. Yeah. Just hematoma. A hematoma is just a clot. The hemorrhage is actually seeing the blood. blood. Yeah. So you don't know you have a subchorionic hemorrhage technically unless you actually see the blood. Mm-hmm. Subchorionic. Which call it hematoma. hematoma? I've never even heard that term used so yeah. much, but it's but on ultrasound, that's you know what you're seeing is a little black clear area behind the 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 embryonic plate. Yeah, and the thing to know is that sometimes women do have bleeding in early pregnancy or in pregnancy. That I think we did a whole podcast about bleeding in pregnancy, but that does not lead to a miscarriage. So just because you're seeing blood does not necessarily mean that there will be a miscarriage. And that might be a, a good time if it's going to help you feel more relaxed to go in and get an ultrasound and just see, is it a subchorionic hemorrhage or are we having a demise? So Yeah. I think when you have a problem, it makes sense to try to figure that out because information in that scenario is, can be helpful. But you know, a lot of these things are, are picked up because we're doing ultrasounds, as you said earlier, mm-hmm. uh, Melissa. They're just you know over, the overuse of ultrasound. Yeah, right. and that's great because we just had another question here about early pregnancy bleeding and spotting, so we covered that one too. Yeah, one of our future podcasts we're going to talk about low lying placentas. Yeah, and people seeing low lying placentas at sixteen weeks and telling people they've got to stop all their activity, no. and that's yeah, no, I don't know. no, yeah, yeah, that'll be that'll be the title of the podcast. Will be. No! <laughs> so we have a new sponsor, Bliss. Dr. Lindsay has been our friend for a really long time. She's been a birth colleague. And her company, BirthFit, is focused on supporting women throughout the motherhood transition with general strength and conditioning programs for preconception, pregnancy, and postpartum. Isn't that awesome? Like any phase of the journey, you can use their programs. They even have a B community where you can go to if you're trying to conceive or if you know you want to in the next one to three years, which is awesome. They have a lying in program, which is in the first, you know, beginning of postpartum. Like what they say is even a day after you can start to get into this. It's 30 days, one video a day, less than 10 minutes that focus on reconnecting and honoring your body in the immediate postpartum period. They use breathing exercises, visualization, belly massages, so cool. And then they have an extended program called Postpartum Program. It's a 12-week program focused on building a base level of general physical fitness with simple lifts, tempo work, and of course, breath work. And all of the work that they do um, requires no or minimal equipment. Um, so you can do it right out of your home. Um, and then of course they have the prenatal program. They have a, a basic 30 day program where no equipment is necessary. I guess if you can kind of test out and see if you like their, their vibe. And then they have a more extensive pro- program, the prenatal training program, which is a full-term strength and conditioning program. Um, I mean, wow. Yeah. I, I've, no, I've known Lindsay for a really long time. She's a, she was a chiropractor in LA before, before they fled and moved to Texas. <laughs> uh, anyway, we, we support them wholeheartedly because this kind of a program is great for our our clients and most of our listeners. Yeah. Um, so you go to birthfit.com, that's B-I-R-T-H-F-I-T.com. Use the code INSTINCTS1, all caps, INSTINCTS1, with the number, not the not one, but the number, to get a discount on a basics prenatal program, or use code INSTINCTS2 to get a discount on the basic postpartum program. All right, so we love BirthFit. Uh, it's OB and midwife approved. That's right. And right. please support them. And congratulations on your pregnancy, Lindsay. Thanks for joining the team. Welcome to the Birthing Instincts neighborhood. So what advice can you give someone preparing for a potential breach delivery, mental and physical preparation? I'm assuming that they're planning a vaginal breach delivery. Um, what advice can you give someone preparing for a potential breach delivery? Okay. The first advice I would give them always is to find somebody who's supportive of of breach delivery as yeah. someone who's supportive support and skilled to do mm-hmm. it. And that, again, if you have to cross state lines, if you have to drive, you know, to a different hospital, if you have to switch from your plan for a home birth in a state that doesn't allow breach delivery to a doctor, maybe in your state who does do breach delivery in the hospital, whatever you do, because you want to avoid that first cesarean section mm-hmm. more than, you know, more than you know, especially if you want more children. Uh-huh. So trusted team, mm-hmm. don't worry 
I know that this sounds very unusual for people to, to hear this, but the idea that um, breech bursts are any are significantly different than head down bursts no. is untrue. Be prepared for meconium. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Meconium is normal in a yeah. breech birth. Yeah, but I'm just trying to think what you're doing before you even go into labor. That's where I was. I was going mm-hmm. to get mm-hmm. just, just. I would just consider it to be a baby that's being born breached, but it's still being born normally. I, I, the key is to have a confidence in yourself and confidence in your practitioner, and and knowing and knowing that you meet the safe criteria to do it. And there are certain criteria where breaches aren't a good idea to do vaginally. So we're not going to get into those today because we've done it a dozen times. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, it as it's, it's, not, it's not that complicated. Yeah. Just know that breech babies, when they come out, generally a little more stunned, they'll have a slightly lower chance of having a higher chance of having a lower one minute APGAR score. What's the value of a one minute APGAR score? Not super high. Not super high. Right. I mean, I had an extremely low one minute after score. You personally? Yeah, I think I had a well, one that's minute why, after That's why you became a gynecologist, though. Oh. Right. I also had a pretty low five minute after score. <laughs> yeah. Five minute after score is much more important than your one minute. Yeah. No, no. It's It doesn't really mean much of anything. Yeah. In that. And even even well, ACOG's literature doesn't say yeah. it. It just can be prepared to be able to give that baby a little bit more time and maybe a little more assistance. What's important about the one minute APGAR score really is whether or not we need to step in and intervene. And and all of the things that we do should be to decide whether or not there's a different course of action that should be taken in terms of care. Yeah. And most of the time you're going to decide that long before you before the one minute is up as far as wh- whether you're going to help that baby or not. If it's really challenged. Yeah, yeah. Right. Absolutely. But I usually say try and give the baby. Yeah, a I mean, the, the thing is, breach, breach is always always thought of as this weird separate category because that's the way we're trained and that's yeah. the way that culture sees it. But for those of us in the breach world, it really isn't. And, uh, you know, I would prefer people to look at some of the breach literature. You know, if you're if you're a birth worker, definitely you want to, even a doula or a lactation, take, take one of the breach classes. It'll just give you so much information that you can then spread to your clients, even though you're not going to probably be catching a breach. At least you'll be educated and knowledgeable. So go breach without borders with a reteach breach class, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Right. Great. This one says best way to empower moms to decline cervical checks when they feel uncomfortable. God, man, I just say no. Just say no. <laughs> That's a lot uh, of our stuff. Yeah, but I mean, have people with you who will who will also back you up. Like, make sure that your partner is with you to to support you to say like she said no. Maybe even to physically step in. Well, also plan ahead. Yeah, talk you know the, about the, the maybe talk it through. Be like practice the problem. The, the problem with the with the corporate model of medicine, however, though, is you have no idea who your nurse is going to be. You have no idea who your doctor is going to be most of the time nowadays. So even though you may talk about this out with your doctor or your midwife ahead of time. You know, midwife bottle is different, but I'm talking. We're talking about the hospital. The people that are taking care of you that day may may not be the same people. So, ideally, you want to have this talked out ahead of time. Say, listen, I really don't want fashion exams unless there's an absolute necessity for it, and you need to explain that to me because I don't want the bacteria. I I was I was sexually I was sexually traumatized. I just don't want strangers putting their hands in me. I don't want somebody putting dots on a Friedman curve. Are people still doing it? Oh yeah, of course they are. <laughs> really? Yeah. So. Yeah. So just just decline unless there's unless they can give you a good reason that intervention comes in play. What is that? Dina? No is a complete sentence. That's That's one of my favorite, favorite terms. (laughs) Fantastic. I love it. I really like just almost like practicing saying it in advance. Like you could practice saying it with your partner. You can practice saying it with your doula and like practice a little scenario. Like the nurse make this is a thing that girls and women have a hard time with is people pleasing mm-hmm. and trying not to make other people feel awkward mm-hmm. because especially when someone else is being nice to you, well, we just want to make sure everything's okay. We just want to make sure baby's okay. Baby's not doing well. Heart rate's not doing well. We just want to make sure baby's okay. And you know, like we're socialized to make sure that everyone else is comfortable at the expense of our own selves, at the expense of our own comfort. And in the moment, that can be incredibly disempowering. And so I think practicing our own response to that in advance of labor is would be super helpful for people. Yeah. I mean, sometimes you get a doctor like Dr. Keynes, who's very understanding, but most of the time you're not going to get that scenario. And it reminds me of a scene from the movie War Games at the very end where, where the computer's playing tic-tac-toe with itself and it can't win. And it says, the only winning move is not to play. 
So for anybody that can stay away from the hospital or stay away from the hospital as long as possible by having a doula or possibly a monitorese at home, then you don't have to have vaginal exams. You can show up when you're feeling rectal pressure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. And yeah. maybe get one vaginal exam. Yeah. yeah. Instead of having them have to chart you so that they can decide whether or not you're moving fast enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's just being really clear with them about your desires and getting support from your partner, or especially if you're in the hospital, I always say you should have a doula with you. So if you can afford that, if it's something that's in your wheelhouse to be able to do that, the doula can really help advocate for that as well. And, you know, saying when someone offers you a vaginal exam and you say, no, I don't really want to do that right now. And then they say, okay, we'll come back in an hour. An hour is not necessarily enough time to have that kind of change. Sometimes on an epidural, four hours isn't even enough to have that kind of change because epidurals really do slow down the process. Mm -hmm. That's that cascade of intervention that people get in with doing Pitocin and epidural and then baby tanks, and then we have a C-section. So just knowing that if you go in for pain relief or if that's your intention to have pain relief, the likelihood is that your dilation process could slow down. And so even something like four hours is not going to be necessarily enough time to have that change. And so you just have to advocate for yourself, depending on what is important to you. That's what I mean. Right. Yeah. Stay out of the hospital. <laughs> yes. Is one hour normal, acceptable for the natural delivery of placenta? I would say yes, by the way. Oh, I, I would say that. 90 some percent of placentas will deliver in less than an hour for sure. But it's normal to take an hour. It, it, yeah. I mean, you're it, asking doctors and that's not. Well, yeah. You know, our training, our training, <laughs> our training is a little, we never let anybody go more than about three minutes. <laughs> oh, <laughs> but, I would say 30, 30. No, I'm saying, but no, when I was, when I was a resident, it was like the minute the baby's out, put traction on the cord and get oh. the placenta. That's what we did. Mm-hmm. Right. But okay. So 30 minutes is probably most will deliver maybe one, one and a half standard deviations. I think by, by an hour, you're probably at least two standard deviations, which is 97% mm-hmm. people will deliver their placenta within an hour. So that would still be considered normal. It's, yeah. like, it's like, you know, it's like, what do they call somebody who graduates last in medical school? <laughs> still normal? In no, doctor. doctor. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> right. So there's whatever curve they're on, they're still they're normal. They're still normal. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, as of what time synthetic oxytocin shall be considered? Never. With a placenta? placenta? Well, I'm a big fan of not giving synthetic oxytocin because I think it interferes with a lot more than it might even help. So with. what if you had a placenta that wasn't coming? Well, how does how does Pitocin make the placenta come sooner? Because it causes a well, the, But the uterus is larger, contracting anyway. But maybe it causes a larger contraction and helps it shear off. Or does maybe it? she's not I'm just trying really to. Contracting. I'm just trying to think. I've seen but, it work. Yeah, but it also works when you don't get Pitocin too. These placentas come out. Yes, of course. And I'm just I'm, I'm just know. concerned about the the attachment, the, the lactation, oh, all the other things that go on. But then I become more concerned the more I read about synthetic oxytocin so, and the fact that ACOG still calls it oxytocin, even though it's not oxytocin. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So they're just playing with the language there to make people think it's the same thing, and it's not. I don't know. You're in the med- you're in the more medicalized yeah. world. How how often do you think that giving oxytocin makes it or pitocin, excuse me, yeah. makes a difference? In terms of like a sticky placenta? Yeah. For me, honestly, like if I have a placenta that's not coming, I actually don't find that oxytocin really is all that helpful. That's what I'm thinking. Sorry, pitocin. <laughs> um, yeah, we both do it, right? I find it most commonly in the setting of um actually of IVF, uh IVF placentas that are really just stuck in there. How long are you waiting? For me, I'm trained on 30 minutes. Okay. So, and I, they I've, might be sticky because it's not time yet. Yeah. If they're well, hemorrhaging, that's a different story. If the they're thing. hemorrhaging, then yes. Then, but if you're just waiting on a placenta and, and there's no blood building up in the uterus, the fundus is still at the umbilicus and placenta is just not ready to detach. I'm not sure that, that the benefits of Pitocin in that scenario outweigh the potential downsides of it. That's just, that's yeah. my take on it. Um, anecdotally, I've seen Hemabate actually work better for a sticky placenta. Hemabate is a, is a, um, What's what's the category of drug? That it's a misoprostol, but what's it? No, it's a um, oh god. Yeah, all my I'm, all I'm my, drawing a blank on, on all my residency professors are screaming right now. They're it's not believe piece. believe me. They're not watching <laughs> us on Instagram. <laughs> oh yeah, it's a PG prostaglandin F two alpha F two alpha. That yeah, right. Anyway, is it misoprostol prostaglandin too? Yeah, it's just a different kind. But, yeah. Yeah. So what I would say is. 
sometimes a placenta is not ready to come in 30 minutes, 45 minutes, or even an hour. I just had a mom at home um, and it was over an hour. And I, you know, I tried a couple of times to see if the placenta was right there in her vagina. It did gentle cord traction. It was obvious that it wasn't coming. I just let it go. And after an hour, it came out like, like it's supposed to, you know? And so I think that sometimes with the protocols in the hospital of being 30 minutes, I do feel like we are rushing the process when it's not really released yet and can cause more bleeding, more discomfort for the mama. A hundred percent. Yeah, it's and, way more. And I know that you probably don't know the answer to this, but I would I would suspect that most of your colleagues at this local hospital here don't wait 30 minutes. Absolutely not. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Anecdotally, no. Right. You know, I'm not in everybody's births, but no. It's um, not even anecdotal, but it's knowable. And I know in at home, you also have other ways of, like you have the ability to move around a lot more than we do in the hospital when you're getting placentas out. Because most of your women are um, on an epidural? Not even on an epidural. I'm just like literally not allowed to have people out of bed. They can't squat on the bed? Well, I've actually never had somebody squat on the bed for a placenta. I haven't haven't really needed to. Mm -hmm. The stickiest placentas I've had have been with people with epidurals, Mm -hmm. luckily. Mm -hmm. But but you have people usually squat. When somebody has a really sticky placenta, yeah, you can oh. get them out of bed sometimes. Oh, there's herbs, which speaking of is not in my brain right now. The herbs, we can give herbs, we can get baby to breast, you know, really slowing everything down and making it really quiet and really supporting that physiologic process of having baby and mom together is a really important part of it as well. But if it's not coming, sometimes getting her up to pee or just squatting, getting in a squatting position can, can change things. So there's, there's. But most of yeah, I, I, I have, I've been impressed by the midwives who do that. Angelica. I mean, that's okay. not that's not something that we that's the herb. Mm-hmm. That's not a person. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, um, yeah. But I've been impressed by watching that because that's not something that Drake and I learned was the idea of of getting a woman up and squatting or yeah. getting her on the toilet yeah. and that sort of thing. And, yeah. and awesome. I've seen I've I've midwives have again a lot of almost all of what I know now, I know from midwives and, yeah. and not from what I learned in medical school. Which right. is good. We should be exchanging information, right? Because yeah. we, you know, we have ex- different expertise. Yeah. And that- yeah, but you guys are right far more than we were. Yeah, very, <laughs> very true. You are. You are. Thank you for holding because, on to because my Because far more people, far more, <laughs> far more pregnant women fall into your category. Yeah. yeah. Of normal. Yeah. Where you're an expert. Yes. Drake and I are experts in problems. Surgeries. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I'm, but not, you were the, I'm no longer an expert in surgery. The knowledge. Thank we you try. For to Thank yeah. you. We try. We try. All right. So we're going to talk a little bit about our sponsor, Needed. We love them. They have an amazing company. And you know what, you guys? Your prenatal nutrition isn't cutting it. So they redesigned the prenatal vitamin for you to be optimally nourished. They came out with a new product. I mean, I just feel like Every time I turn around, they've got a new amazing product. And this one is an immune support. It's easy to take delicious elderberry powder to support optimal immune health for the whole family. You know, I was hiking the other day and I saw an elderberry bush. You recognized it? Of course not. <laughs> no. Really impressed. No, but the midwife I was with recognized it right away. Um, 70% of the immune system resides in the gut. So comprehensive support is needed. Most immune support products aren't designed for all ages and stages. Their immune support is safe and effective for the whole family, kids, pregnant, and nursing moms included. So that is perfect for our followers. Yeah, so go to their website at uh, thisisneeded.com and look through their products. I mean, not only do they have a prenatal vitamin, uh, which we recommend, but they have sleep and relaxation support, stress support, hydration support, collagen, a pre and probiotic, which I think is a good thing um, for a lot of us to be taking, especially if you have immune issues, or if you uh, had recently taken antibiotics or something like that, they have a whole thing for men. So you can, men can look at that at their website as well. So again, we love their, we love their sponsor. And what makes them different is optimal nutrient forms, dosages that help you thrive, easy to take at all stages of pregnancy. They were formulated with practitioners and they're recommended by over 3000 women health experts, just like us. And I was going to say that. (laughs) <laughs> I stole your. You stole it. No. Okay. So go to thisisneeded.com. Just spell it out and use the code Birthing Instincts to get 20% off your first order. Thisisneeded.com. I think you get 20% off every order, but just, mm-hmm. just uh, use the code word Birthing Instincts at thisisneeded.com. Thanks, Needed. Thank you.
how long is it okay to be in labor after your water breaks? A long time. Moving on. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Remember, we, we hate we hate numbers. We hate giving people like two days or 48 hours or whatever. There's case studies of people being in labor for days and days, as long as they're doing fine. People who have who um have rupture, but yeah. their baby is tiny, right? Like a preterm. Well, sometimes they're not. They're- people who are preterm can be have their water be broken for weeks. Can That's weeks. what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. There's cases of people mm-hmm. at term who are in labor for three, four, five days. We we've got but our own case studies. Just fine. We uh, you know we had the set of twins. Were you with that? Yes. You? Yeah. So, six days. Six days. She was a nurse. She was a, she was an RN and she refused to go to the hospital and she lived far away. So yeah. every day I'd have to drive out to Yehuppetsville to, to go check on those babies. Right. Yeah. I mean, you can be in, when your water's broken, you can be in labor or not in labor. Yes. Mm-hmm. As long as you're not having signs of infection and your baby's. No vaginal exams, no intercourse. In that. No, yeah. just don't put anything in there. Yeah. Yeah. It's all downstream. Everything's flowing downstream. It's a lot of, and the baby, and by the way, the fluid doesn't disappear. Baby continues to make more fluid. Sorry. Okay. Baby, can, baby continues to make, more, I'm not used to having my phone over there. Baby can, baby can, baby continues to make more fluid all the time. Cause most of amniotic fluid is fetal pee mm-hmm. and babies that are well perfused are making more fluid all the time. Which is which is one of those things again about when they do a scan for no reason at 36 weeks and they find the fluids a little bit low. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, okay, well, come back in an hour. Yeah, and there'll be more fluid because yeah. the baby peed on itself. Or yeah, do a cartwheel and the baby will move and you'll find a, a new pocket. A new pocket, correct. You're having pregnant moms do cartwheels. Well, I mean, if you can, <laughs> I was like, wow. figuratively. I think she's talking figuratively. Try to picture we're going out to the parking lot. Figuratively, do a cartwheel. Do a cartwheel, come back. Yeah, the baby does this. Then you, all of a sudden you've lost one pocket and then you yeah. completely obliterated, you know, yeah. two, three centimeters of your amniotic fluid. Yeah. Right? You know, it's almost, again, you, you find what you look for. And if you're, if you're looking for a reason to induce, you'll find one. The amniotic fluid index isn't even validated for fetal well-being. It's validated for external cephalic version. So what are we doing? What are we doing? <laughs> you know, so if I had a mom who had her bag rupture. I could answer that. What, what I would tell her is put on a pad, take your temperature every six hours or so, just to make sure that you're not developing a fever, which is one of those signs of an infection that we might need to do something different if that happens. You know, make sure that the discharge doesn't have a foul smell. Up your, up your, not antibiotics, up your- Don't up your antibiotics. (laughs) Up your antibiotic, up your immunity boosters and keep everything out of the vagina, including sex, fingers, vaginal exams, things like that. Because- the studies that they have done where women have gotten infections were based on hospital births where there were multiple vaginal exams mm-hmm. because that is going to introduce bacteria into the vagina and can travel up into the uterus as it's starting to open. Especially so, as the doctor is trying to, stri- to sweep your cervix or stretch it out. Right, right, right. So, and then second part of this question was, I know hospitals push for a C-section. I think I think most of the time when the water breaks, they're trying, what I've seen is people, is doctors just trying to get you into labor or right. get you to deliver. I don't necessarily know that most of the time they jump to a C-section. No, they don't, but it's, yeah. but, but rupturing your membranes by in by itself is never an indication for a cesarean section, unless yeah. there's a separate indication like a prolapse cord or a transverse yeah. lie or a, yeah. something weird like that. But, but if a doctor says you've been ruptured for 12 hours and you're not in labor, that we should do a C-section on you. No. Run, run as far as, as fast as you can. Yeah. So, so what we'll out of there. (laughs) (laughs) So what we're saying is you can decline a C-section for that for sure. And continue to labor in the hospital. If that's what your doctor needs you to do and watch for signs of infection, knowing that if you get an epidural, your temperature might go up as well. So that might not be a really good indication that you have an infection, but that you've gotten an epidural. So anything else about that? Oh, there's, I got a lot of stuff, but we'll just go on to another question. Okay. I mean, because I could go off on a tangent about, about you know, skewed consent and coercion and stuff like that, but uh, that's a whole... Okay. We've done a lot of podcasts on that. Can I learn to palpate for head or bum without a medical background? Yeah. 100%. Yeah. We teach dads to do it all the time in the office. I think that Spinning Babies has a really good resource in terms of belly mapping that you could go and look up, and that might be helpful if you... I mean, you ha- says she has a midwife, so I would I would have your midwife yeah, teach, teach you. you. Although sometimes it is hard, even for us providers that do this all the time. But 
it depends on your anatomy. You probably could be able to distinguish. Most of the here. time, it's really obvious that that's a, that, that, that that's a head down there, mm -hmm. and when it's not really there. obvious, or up there, or up there. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, but wherever you're feeling the head, most of the mm -hmm. time the head is pretty obvious to feel. Sometimes it's not. You're right. Sometimes there's soft tissue. Sometimes it's it's a little confusing, and that's where other skills might come in. Where are you hearing the hard tones? Is an ultrasound real quick, like a little butterfly, quick little scan to if you're at term, and it really makes a difference because you're practitioners not allowed to do breaches or whatever that makes sense but but yeah to do it at home, i mean it's fun and it'd be fun for you to do it at home and again i'm not encouraging anybody to go out and buy a doppler for home use because i think that that's a setup for anxiety right right so the head is harder and rounder than a bum and the other thing is when you move the head it's what we call blottable so it moves on its own but if you're trying if you're moving a bottom the whole baby will move with it so these are some things that, you know, can help you distinguish and that you might be able to feel, but um, it's not, is a skill in a lot of times. Yeah. Um, okay. Why do doctors not recommend keto diets for pregnant mamas? It's not healthy. Keto is ketosis, which means that you're starving. Yeah. Keto is sort of not really good for anybody. <laughs> not really not good for you. <laughs> no, it, it, not it never, it never life. keep, by the way, if you're trying to do weight loss when you're not pregnant, a keto diet, you may lose weight, but you'll never keep it off. Yeah. Yeah. So and we, the diet was really like for a single, it was developed for a single specific reason. And it was developed for kids with epilepsy. And what was it? Yeah. And it works for that beautifully, oh, but did not know that it, but then we found out that it makes you lose tremendous amounts of weight. And it was very bad for kids with epilepsy and for that reason, but it works for the epileptic seizures, but it is not sustainable for the long run. And it's, you know, it's not great for pregnant women. Any, 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 yeah. Any weird diets are not something that you should do in pregnancy. I mean, you should eat, man. your body tells you what you need. I mean, it may crave meat. And then even if you're a vegetarian, it may crave meat. And sometimes you should consider that that's a reason to, eat meat if it's unless there's some real reason that you versus doing that but a, but a keto diet is is right it's causing ketosis ketosis is not good for your body yeah. you're breaking down fat and and you're and the byproducts of that are crossing the placenta it's not a good thing yeah so what would you consider a balanced optimal diet for pregnancy well you're better at that than okay. me <laughs> <laughs> so 75 to 100 grams per one baby of protein in your diet if you are eating meat, obviously it's easier to do that, but it's not necessary as a vegan or vegetarian. You just need to kind of layer your, your proteins like seeds and nuts and beans and those types of things. You'll probably need some protein supplement, like a, like a great powdered protein that you put in a smoothie or something like that. You also want to yeah, obviously eliminate processed foods. You want to eat organic as much as possible. Your meat, if it can be grass-fed, is great. I know that that's not possible for everyone. And then thinking about a variety of minerals and vitamins from your fruits and vegetables. So looking at having what we call a rainbow a day and not Skittles, as Stu used to joke around about. So that if you do that, those are really simple. So that would be five palm-sized portions of protein a day if you were like just kind of thinking about it and didn't have a calculator. So that's three meals and two snacks. So that's the basics. And yeah. lots of water, half of your body weight in ounces in water. So that could be teas and stuff like that. Yeah, too. frequent, small meals. Yeah, Right. protein-rich. Protein-rich, especially yeah. at night. Yeah. If you like, you want some carbs, if you want to have an ice cream or something like that, you have it in the daytime. Don't have that just before bed. Don't yeah. don't have a bowl of cereal with sugar on it. Don't, you know, that you want to have protein before you go to bed. You'll sleep better and your blood sugar will remain more level through the night. You have a really good question on Great. here. Go for it. It was it's just hard for me to it, reach it, it was just about defining high risk. Yeah. Somebody there's been a conversation going on. I've missed most of it, but somebody says Sunsweet, a wrapped baby is talking to somebody named Sunsweet and says, going to have to define high risk and then by whose definition. And I think right. it's really important because high risk is in the eyes of the beholder. And doctors are trained that everything from a woman over 35 to a woman on low dose Synthroid to, to just about, you know, a husband, your husband's six foot eight inches tall. I mean, that makes you high risk. So just about... If, if you want to find high risk, you will. And the doctor's even designed to have what's called a problem list. And the first thing on your problem list on their form is that you're pregnant. 
So they consider pregnancy to be problem number one when actually it's a normal physiologic function. So we in this group here look at high risk a little bit differently. And, and it's a terrible term because by telling someone they're high risk, you increase the chances that they're high risk because now you have planted seeds of doubt in them throughout the entire pregnancy. And they're going to be seeding their baby with worries and anxieties and more testing. And what does more testing usually lead to? Very rarely they'll find something that was important to find, but most of the time it just leads to more testing, more fear, more interventions, more testing, and then eventual induction. Um, so high risk is a terrible term. We should get rid of the term high risk. We should discuss things individually as they are. You have preeclampsia. You have chronic hypertension. Stop calling it high risk. Let's just directly name, name it mm -hmm. and then deal with it because not everything that's labeled high risk is really high risk at all. I hate the blanket term yeah. because I really don't like that makes everybody get treated the same way because we're individuals. Well, well, because it fits the system. Yeah. It, fe it feeds the system. You weren't, you weren't here earlier. We were talking about that, that, that maternal fetal medicine profession is a scam. I know that, that that's a pretty broad statement to say that, but it is a scam because, you know, how many, what percentage of women really are high risk? Yeah. 10%, 10% maybe 15, even that many. True. These days? True. With how many people no, no. over the age of 35? Well, I'm not, not talking about that. I'm talking about <laughs> truly high risk. Really. Yet in your community here, how many pregnant <laughs> women make it through pregnancy without seeing an MFM? Almost none. Your I'm clients right. might I'm have, right. but other than that, it's almost zero. Yeah. Everyone sees Sophie's office. Mm -hmm. They all, they all go there. Okay. So he's probably seeing 85% of people that don't really need to see him. That's why I call it that mm -hmm. because it serves their purpose to label somebody with a label, mm -hmm. whether it's whatever you want to call it, but high risk is the term that they're given. Once they're labeled that, then women go around in, in their social groups and they say, well, I have to do this because I'm high risk. Yeah. And when we're saying, oh, you're 35. And I'm moving my hand. 35 again. years old and one month mm -hmm. and you're on. <laughs> and then that's the, the same as somebody with mono die twins or somebody with Chronic hypertension. Active lupus. Somebody with chronic hypertension who's on 800 milligrams of all this day, or somebody with type one diabetes who's you know got you know bouncing all over the place. Manifestations. Yeah. That those are not the same thing. And I have 30. I have 40 year old patients who are biologically 20 years old, and I have 25 year old patients with multiple medical conditions. Right. Or I have a 25 year old smoker who's not technically high risk. There are no screening. That person is not told to get NSTs, a 25-year-old smoker. Hmm. There is no indication for that person to get NSTs. No, but it's, again... But it, the 35-year-old is. supposed gets, to get twice it, a week. It gets NSTs. back to serving the system to label everybody high risk because then it creates, it generates revenue for the people that benefit from the system, which are not most of the employees in the system and certainly not the patients in the system. I would say... In terms of being an appropriate candidate for out-of-hospital delivery, a pre-existing health condition might have you not be managed that way. If you've got medications that you should be monitored, then that would probably be better that you're being managed in the hospital. Or if you develop something during pregnancy that puts you into that category where you know, it just might be more supportive to you to be in the hospital, to be monitored a little bit more than what we do for a normal birth at home. The problem is you're, sometimes you're going to get advice from your obstetrician, which says, well, you're high risk, therefore you shouldn't have a home birth. And again, seek out a second opinion in that, in yeah, that case. Midwife, yeah. high risk. Right. Midwives will, midwives will tell you whether or not they feel like they're, that that's something they're comfortable taking care of or not. Right. Whereas a doctor, they, they were just, they just, so fearful of home birthing that because they don't understand it. They don't. And they don't know what we do. They don't know the equipment that we bring, what our skill sets are, that we're experts in normal birth, as we talked about today. Is there one uh, last question? No, we're, we're going to wrap up. up. Okay. Um, so I hope you guys enjoyed this. We always love being live and seeing you guys, getting everybody in the picture. Stu and I are going to be doing more of these. And we will keep you abreast some things that we're going to start offering the community. So if this is something that you really enjoyed, stay tuned. And we will continue to help answer the questions that you guys have. We love you. Thank you for being our fellow travelers. Thank you to our sponsors. Thank you for hosting us today and joining us. It was really fun to have you here to answer questions. Anything from you? Oh, just just gratitude for being alive. <laughs> and, you know, every day is a good day. Uh, I love that. It's true. Yeah.
and for you guys and for all my all my birth workers and for whatever path led me down this road to end up where I am today is a good thing. I heard a real quickly a story of woe. I was listening. It was about somebody was moving and they rented a U-Haul and they went under a bridge that was too low and they sawed off the top of the U-Haul and then that they were okay. And then they drove on and it started to rain. So all their stuff got wet. So their the father was with the son. The father went out to try to put a tarp over the thing, fell down, broke his arm. God. All right. Bad day. <laughs> okay. Well, but so they call an ambulance. The ambulance comes. And in the ambulance, one of the EMTs is this young woman. Turns out that the son and the young woman end up dating and getting married and having children and having a family. So the last thing I'll say is that from something that might be shitty, if you just keep looking, you're going to find that rainbow. Hopefully. Yes. I love that. Yeah. Okay, you guys have a beautiful day and we hope to see you next time. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Birthing Instincts podcast. We know that we all lead busy lives, so we are extremely grateful that you give us an hour of your time each week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for the latest updates and reviews. To help others join us, you can find Dr. Stu at Birthing Instincts and Bliss at Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram. 